Thanks for listening to Bullseye. I want to tell you about a new way to get the news each morning. Up first is the morning news podcast from NPR. Give us 10 minutes or so. You get a sense of the stories and big ideas of the day. Stuff you really need to know and why it matters. Start your day with Up First, weekday mornings by 6 a.m. Eastern Time on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's get to the show. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. There's a lot of mythology around Werner Herzog, you know, the German director. The funny thing is a lot of it is true. They say one time on a plane he ignored orders to brace for impact so that he could get a better view of the emergency landing. That he hauled a giant steamboat over a big hill in the Amazon. That he once ate a shoe live on stage. And that during a totally routine interview in the hills of Los Angeles, somebody shot him. We, we looked at the situation and I, I saw that um, the bullet, minor sort of bullet, uh, had perforated my leather jacket and the catalogue in the pocket and shirt and underwear and everything, but it hadn't penetrated into my intestines. So I was bleeding, but uh, it was superficial. And I said, uh, well, this was an insignificant bullet which made its round in the internet. You could see how it would. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with Werner about the time he took a bullet on TV. He'll also tell me about his latest work, a South American thriller called Salt and Fire. And we'll find out about a crucial detail in the story of Herzog. Does he watch sitcoms? No, I, I barely know what it is. <laughs> but I think it's people sitting on couches and talking. Roughly, yes. First, I'll talk with Phil Elverum. He's recorded dozens of albums under the name Mount Erie. His latest is a really frank and sometimes disarming exploration of what it's like to lose a loved one. Now that I have experienced it and I feel kind of humbled by the realities of it, I just realized that it's not for playing around with. So if I'm going to sing about something, I'm just going to sing about what I do know, which is like taking out the garbage. Finally, I know it's a cliche, but when was the last time you saw a movie with a real heart? They're not as easy to find as you'd think. I'll tell you why Broadcast News, the 1987 movie starring Holly Hunter, has heart for days. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I want to start off the show with a warning. There is going to be some really frank, sometimes graphic talk about death and cancer coming up in this first interview. So if you're not comfortable with that, I, I understand you turning off the radio. I, I think if you can make yourself comfortable, you'll get something out of this. My guest is Phil Elverum. He's a recording artist and a songwriter. His career dates back over 20 years, first as The Microphones, later as Mount Erie. He's produced ambitious, beautiful records that mix genres like folk, noise, death metal, shoegaze. It sounds a little bit like I'm listing off all the different bins in a record store, but it's really compelling stuff. His albums have gotten a lot of acclaim, not just because of that studio experimentation, but because of the beautiful kind of ephemeral lyrics he uses to tackle big existential questions. 
On his latest record, A Crow Looked at Me, he abandons pretty much all of that formal stuff. His wife, Genevieve, died of pancreatic cancer last summer. Phil wrote and recorded the album in the room where she died, using instruments she owned. As an album, it's raw, plainly spoken, and kind of therapeutic. He talks about really specific moments, trips to the hospital, getting rid of old clothes, getting her mail after she died. Anyway, we're going to talk about all that in a little bit, but first let's take a listen to an earlier song from Phil, The Moon, with Microphone's 2003 album, The Glow, Part 2. I drove up to the city Phil Elvrum, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. It's nice to be here. Phil, I want to talk about a dumb thing because I think we're going to mostly talk about not dumb things. <laughs> and so... Well, I'll see about that. See what I can do about that. <laughs> I, I just feel like we're going to have a hard time coming back around to dumb things. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to ask you about something that came up when you were a guest on my comedy show, Jordan Jesse Go, that maybe has been the single thing that has generated the most response from our audience in the entire history of the program. What? Yeah, I mean, we've been doing that show 10 years, and I don't, I can't think of a single thing that has generated the intensity. Oh, maybe that one time that Jordan suggested a nonsense license plate that said full chort. But, <laughs> but besides that... <laughs> It's a thing called Wad Lord, and mm-hmm. I wonder if you could explain to our NPR audience what Wad Lord is. <laughs> Wad Lord's hitting the big time right now. <laughs> uh, Wad Lord is a cash-based, very raw gambling game uh, that we invented on tour at the merch table, where you just have a wad of cash and. Um, all the players have to guess how much is in the wad, and whoever gets closest gets the entire wad of cash. It's very high stakes. The participants each contribute to the wad, and then the wad lord is the person who's not uh, in contention for the wad, who knows the number and is um, the judge, basically. So yeah, all the players contribute some bills, but only they know what they've contributed. But here's the question, Phil. If everybody contributes to this wad of cash, why would anyone contribute more than they have to in order to get in the game? I mean, this is a gambling game where the buy-in is one bill, and mm-hmm. it could be a- any amount that's, you know, there's no reason to, to put in a 20 or a 50 or a 100, right? No. there's By putting in a higher denomination bill you are buying yourself the advantage of knowing that the amount is at least, you know, $50 or $100. You, so I have a friend I played a, a really crazy round with. He put in $100, and he's like a poor guy. And so he won. He won the wad, of course, because he knew it was like $122. And um, so that, but, you know, it's a greater risk as well. It started as a joke, this game, but then as we thought about it more like this, the subtleties of it really revealed themselves. It sounds like the kind of game that would lead to violence, honestly. Yeah, well, the game itself is kind of like economic violence. 
<laughs> What's the most money that you've won playing Wadlord? I've only played a few real rounds because it's so terrifying. So few people, there's so few times where people are like, okay, let's do this for real. So it, it's only in really crazy moments. But I think I lost $80 once in a, you know, in one wad. I mean, $80 is enough money that you miss it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was worth it, though. <laughs> it wasn't worth it. It's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I actually want to talk to you about the island that you live in. You're talking to me from Anacortes, Washington. That's right. And it's where you live and I think also where you grew up, right? Yeah, I'm from here. I grew up out of town, but yeah, basically five miles out in the woods. But this this is the town. This is the island. What's it like there? It's a small town, small city, like 15 or 17,000 people or something. And my family's been here for many generations it's very beautiful here and kind of awkward, too. It's it's a retirement town. It's a tourist town now. Some oil refineries. Why did you stay there? I didn't stay. I, I moved away. I lived in Olympia for five years, and I went on tour for 20 years. I mean, you know, I, I entered a part of my life where I just am always leaving. So I think that's a big part of why I'm able to keep living in Anacortes is because I leave all the time. I feel like a lot of people that I talk to who are artists who grow up in a small place, a sort of bounded place, all they thought about when they were a kid and a teenager was their plan to leave to a boundless place, you know, to go to yeah. some place where they could do anything they wanted because nobody cared. <laughs> yeah, I don't I never felt that way. I my friends and I in high school, I mean that was definitely the consensus for everyone else. That everyone couldn't wait to move to Seattle or New York or whatever, but um, not me. My friends and I, we just were so busy with our own weird stuff we were doing, our art projects and bands and zines, and it just never seemed uh, it never seemed true that this place is boring and nothing ever happens because we are just so occupied with our weird stuff. But, you know, I, I knew I wanted to leave just for the experience of living a full life. How did you meet your wife? She's French-Canadian. She was French-Canadian, and she was living in Victoria, British Columbia, which is pretty close to Anacortes. It's like 30 miles or something, but across an international border. But there's a ferry from here to there. Anyway, she was in the neighborhood, and she was putting on shows. This was in, like, 2003. And so she met a bunch of people, friends of mine, in, like, the music world before she met me. And I started hearing about her, this this magical French-Canadian person named Geneviève that lived in Victoria. And, oh, Phil, just wait till you meet her. And so, so there was this sort of build-up. People um, knew that we were going to, something was going to, that we were meant to meet each other, I think. And she actually wrote to me. I was living in a cabin in Norway by myself this one crazy winter. I went and tried to do that for my life. I was like, I'm moving to Norway forever. Goodbye, everybody. And I went and lived in the Arctic. And anyways, she sent me a letter there. She sent me a little package of her books that she made. She was a cartoonist. So that was how I first encountered her. And then we met in person. I went over there and she set up a bunch of shows for the two of us to play around Victoria and all those islands up, up the 
Canadian Gulf Island coast. Did the two of you correspond or were you just looking for an excuse to get out of Norway? No, when when we we corresponded a little bit and I knew that Norway it wasn't going to work out for me to live there alone forever. Like the romance bubble popped pretty quickly and I came back the next spring and with plans to play shows and we were corresponding the whole time and talking on the phone and we met in person. Yeah, it was pretty much instant as soon as we met each other. It's like, oh, okay, you're my person forever. Hello, nice to meet you. <laughs> what a surprise that you're a French Canadian. Uh, and how how did we happen to meet each other? Crazy. When you and your wife started to plan a life together, did you feel like you could as a cartoonist and a and an entirely independent musician like that was ground solid enough to you know plant a family in no i mean not in a traditional sense we we were uh scrappy punks touring all the time and people raise kids like that and they're fine and they have fun lives but i don't think that was our style but at the same time we knew we wanted to make a baby at least a baby all along and so we didn't really overthink it. We were like, we're doing this thing, and let's try and have a baby, but we'll see what happens. We'll figure it out. Did you feel confident you could figure it out? Yeah. I think both of us are that way, confident that we could figure it out. Like, whatever the question was, we would kind of dive into pretty stupid, ambitious things sometimes and try and figure it out. How far out did you plan with your wife? Uh, Maybe about four months not very far. I mean, we had vague things like, let's have a baby, but it just wasn't happening. We, For like 10 years, we didn't have a baby. And we weren't, I don't know how graphic you want me to get, but we <laughs> we weren't. Um, you you were allowed, you had the window open for the stork? Yeah, the stork window was open for 10 years and it just, no stork came. And it was actually only when we kind of gave up on the idea and we thought about, oh, well, Maybe we can't have a baby. That's fine, too, I guess. We, we weren't existential about it. Because, it, you know, we had proven, like, we we're happy together. And this is a good life also with no baby. So, and then, of course, a couple weeks later, she was pregnant. That must have been astonishing. Yeah, I was so, I don't know, desensitized or skeptical, I guess. I just didn't. It took me a few months of her pregnancy to really get behind the the reality of it because I didn't want to get my hopes up again. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Phil Elverum. He's the recording artist behind Mount Erie. His latest album, A Crow Looked at Me, is out now. How did you find out your wife was sick? Well, in hindsight, now looking at the last part of her pregnancy, there are some things that were like, oh, that must have been the tumor doing pressing up on the thing or whatever like you know she threw up a bunch of times towards the end but yeah it was she had a great pregnancy and did amazing at the childbirth like no drugs or anything really intense long labor but made this great baby and then four months after she went in for just like a postpartum checkup and had some mild uh, abdominal pain but nothing you know, it was just a regular checkup, and the doctor 
saw something a little suspicious on a x-ray or on a scan and so sent her in for or on the ultrasound and sent her in for a ct scan and we weren't engaged with any of that worry we were just like huh that's unusual wonder what that could mean and Genevieve looked it up on the internet and saw it could be this, could be that. Oh, and then down at the bottom of the list, like the least likely thing it could be is pancreatic cancer. But, you know, that's less than 1% likelihood or something. People her age don't get that. And she was extremely healthy as a person. Like, you know, no risk factors, really. But yeah, it was like scan led to another scan, led to like the doctor having this very weird, ambiguous meeting with us where she was like had to rush out of the room and said, well, we don't know. And Shinviev says, well, is it cancer? And the doctor said, uh, uh, likely. I'm so sorry. Do you want to talk to the chaplain? Okay, well, I have to go. Somebody's giving birth. And then we were left with that. Like, what? Likely? Chaplain? Uh, and then we had to wait 10 more days to get to the next appointment in Seattle where it was officially confirmed. So yeah, that was May, beginning of May 2015, when we were just like spiraling into this pit. What was the meeting like when you went to Seattle and the doctor confirmed the diagnosis? It was awful. I mean, it was, uh, I had to leave the baby with my sister in Edmonds, uh, which was the first time we had ever been away from our baby. We like dropped her off and we were late for the appointment. So here's this baby, got to get back in the car, everyone weeping, no kids, my sister's kids not understanding really what was going on. And then go down to the University of Washington. And it was actually like a surgical procedure to get the biopsy. So she had to get um, anesthetized and I had to, I couldn't be in there anymore. I had to go out and walk around. I just went and cried in the car. Um, It's like medical realities, taking the baby away, taking Genevieve away. And I'm like in this car in a parking garage (laughs) eating a sandwich that my mom had packed for me. Like, ugh. It was total annihilation, really, of this uh, joy, this like life that we had being destroyed. The quiet, untreasured in between times, the actual experience. Feel these memories escaping, colonized by photos narrowed down and told. My mind erasing the echo of you in the house dies down. Were you dealing with things? just one at a time as they came or were you thinking of it as goal oriented as 
you know, I often hear of people talking about how, you know, we're going to beat this thing or something. And uh-huh. Like there's a plan and, and uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. I wasn't. Shinviev's role and my role diverged pretty early on. Um, and I, what my job became is like maintaining life, maintaining the household, taking care of logistics, insurance, um, baby, food, just everything. And Genevieve was wrapped up in the bigger goals and her goals sort of took a different path than what mine would have. She got really wrapped up in alternative therapies and also chemo and conventional stuff, but just like reading, researching to the point where she was totally consumed in that world, she couldn't look away from her computer screen and she was not available to us, even though she was still alive. That was, that was really hard. Did you feel like you were looking at a horizon? Did you feel like the, there was going to be something good at the end of all of it? The truth is no, I wasn't (sighs) the stated goal in our household. And like the rule was positive thinking think positively stay focused on positive thoughts but if and i said those things and i would never express my pessimism but the truth is that i knew what was likely and i couldn't turn off the part of my mind that was trying to strategize and prepare for what was likely and so i was just kind of also quietly the whole time lining things up making sure that I understood what happens when a person dies what is the deal with cremation how does that work reading these websites at night after she had gone to sleep like I couldn't turn it off even thinking about planning her memorial as she was alive and those were invasive and problematic thoughts but they were real so that's what I was doing it wasn't it felt a little bit like betrayal because I wasn't towing the line of positive thinking but I was also not swept away in in that sort of new agey stuff I, I had to be pragmatic did you feel guilty about that yeah for sure well because it is like deception in a way Shinviev was really adamant that Everyone positively think about her, even friends around the world. She was really like, we're doing a meditation at 10 o'clock. Everyone focus on me. And I probably at 10 o'clock would have been like doing something gross in the kitchen (laughs) or, you know, cleaning the garbage can or doing the necessities. My conversation with Phil Alvarum will continue after a break. He'll tell me how after years of singing and writing about big philosophical ideas, all that now seems almost kind of dumb. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message comes from ZipRecruiter. When you own a business, if you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. Now you can. Thanks to ZipRecruiter.com, you can post to 100-plus job sites with one single click and have the highest chance of finding that perfect candidate. 
Plus, you can instantly be matched to candidates from over 6 million resumes. Businesses of all sizes have used ZipRecruiter. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com first. NPR is working with the Knight Foundation to better understand how listeners like you spend time with Bullseye and other podcasts. Please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.podcastingsurvey.com. Takes less than 10 minutes, and you do all of us at Bullseye a huge favor by filling it out. That's npr.podcastingsurvey.com. Thanks. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Phil Elverham. As Mount Erie, he's recorded dozens of records. His latest, A Crow Looked at Me, deals with the loss of his wife to cancer. Why did you start writing songs about it? Yeah. That's a good question. It just happened. It just happened. I wasn't planning on it. I wasn't, I didn't think I would ever come back to making music, really. I felt like, oh, I wonder what I'll do with the rest of my life, besides be a dad. And it was about a month after Shenbiev died. I went on a long trip uh, up to these islands in British Columbia with my daughter and this place called Haida Gwaii. And it was just really remote and out there and I was alone with the kid and my thoughts and writing in my notebook it just sort of happened all these things needed to express themselves I guess and then I came home and the, those notebook things started refining themselves into songs it came out really fast surrounded by growth nurse logs with layers of moss and life Cedars, the sound of water, thick aloud, and godlike huckleberries. The ground absorbs and remakes whatever falls. Nothing dies here, but here is where I came to grieve, to dive into it with you. With your absence, but I keep picking you berries. There was something in one of the songs that <laughs> that frankly made me uh, start crying to an un- unsafe extent while I was driving my car today. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Which was, don't worry, there were a couple of them. Um, I, I seriously thought, should I not? Should I get off a highway and finish my drive to work on surface roads? <laughs> but one of them was an offhand mention of the fact that your wife did most of the remembering for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. It was something I related to, and it's such a it's such a it's it's such a scary thing to lose because it's. Um, it's such an it's such a part of how you understand yourself. Yeah. My grandparents were like that, and I think it might be typical of people that are in a couple for a long time. They sort of become this two-headed two-headed beast where one person is doing more of the certain brain work. And my grandparents were always like that. It's kind of a funny cartoony way of finishing each other's sentences, but that was us. That was me and Shinviev. She held the details. For when were we in New Zealand or when would 
We never went to New Zealand. There's a good example of me not even remembering. I never was in New Zealand with her. <laughs> but uh, anyways, I I think that the, the way these songs turned out, where I'm just trying to cram in the specifics, might be related to that memory thing where I'm trying to record for posterity the events that happened, even the banal stuff that maybe doesn't belong in history. I think that I recognize that my this like hard drive of memories is now gone and I need to make an effort to remember it and record it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here with Phil Elvera. He's a musician who records under the name Mount Erie. His latest record, A Crow Looked at Me, is out now. There's something about fixing those things. I mean, you're, the songs that you wrote for this album are so so plain and specific. They're not about, you know, they're not about grand emotional spiritual themes. They are in that you lived a grand emotional experience, The you know, one of the most powerful and intense emotional experiences that any human being could have. But they're not, um, they're not about those big capital letter wide view things. They're about, you know, getting a package that she ordered something online before she died and it came after she died. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I don't want to make big, uh, capital letter existential statements anymore. I feel like that's the thing that 25 year olds should do. <laughs> and I did like a lot. I did a lot of that and I feel kind of embarrassed about it now because I didn't know what I was talking about. And I sang about mortality and I feel only a little embarrassed about it because I, they are questions worth asking, even if you haven't experienced them. That's like, that's the meaning of life, I think, is to like poke around in these big ideas. But I definitely didn't know anything. And now, now that I have experienced it and I feel kind of humbled by the realities of it, I just realized that it's not for it's not for playing around with. So if I'm going to sing about something, I'm just going to sing about what I do know, which is like taking out the garbage. And like you say, I I do think that there's some something gets communicated when you're singing about taking out the garbage and it's you don't need to talk about the grandiose stuff using the exact words of the grandiose stuff. Somehow you can point at it from the side by talking about taking out the garbage. That I think. I mean, that's my idea, at least, with this record. Phil, I know you got you got to get back to that pool and, and get your kid from your mom, so I'm not going to take any more of your time. But um, thank you so much for talking about all this stuff. I I really appreciate it, and I I really appreciated the record. It was really it's really something special. Thank you very much. I'm very glad that we got to talk. And I wish we were in the same place because I was thinking, man, I sure would like to give Phil Elverham a hug. I like that. I like that guy. Well, we'll see each other someday. Great. Maybe we can do some high stakes Wadlord. <laughs> God, <that's> scary. <laughs> I'm already nervous. <laughs> you know, I go to the flea market on Sundays. I got to stop by the ATM, get five hundred dollars in cash out before I go because you know nobody's <laughs> going to take my card. So. I, I, sometimes I got some real cash on me. I'm just putting that in your head to kind of mess with you a little bit. Yikes. So it might be 500 plus in the wad. 
I mean, we'll see. We'll find out. We'll see how gutsy I am. You know, you're going to have to look into my eyes and see what you're prepared to do. Yikes. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. I'm ready. (laughs) Okay, Phil. Thank you so much. Yeah. Talk to you later. Bye. We are always so close to not existing at all. Except in the confusion of our survived bys Grasping at the echoes Today our daughter asked me if mama swims told her, yes, she does. And that's probably all she does now. Phil Alvaro. You can buy A Crow Looked at Me on Phil's website. We'll have a link to it on ours, MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest this week, Werner Herzog. You know, the legendary German film director. What's he been up to lately? Well, he's 74 now. It's not like that's mattered any. In the last two years, he has released two scripted features, two more documentaries, and he has plenty of other stuff coming up. His latest film is called Salt and Fire. It's a thriller set in Bolivia's surreal Uyuni Salt Flats. It stars Veronica Ferris, a very famous German actress. She plays a German scientist sent to Bolivia to do some geological research. But Ferris and her colleague are kidnapped early on by a businessman, played by Michael Shannon. It's at times a bizarre, almost encantory movie, shot in a really compelling, hypnotic way. In this scene, Michael Shannon, the kidnapper, has just removed her blindfold. I demand to be set free now. Now! Please drink. No, thank you. It may taste strange, even bitter, but it will help you adapt to the altitude. I do not care. The tea is brewed from cocoa leaves. That is it. I want my handcuffs removed. You have scratched one of my men and bitten another. I am proud of that. Well, that is why you are wearing handcuffs. Can I take them off now? Look at me. Look at me. Can I take them off now? Yes, you can. Werner Herzog, thank you so much for talking to me. It's great to see you again. Thank you. Um... When you wrote this film, which you did, uh, adapted from a short story, was your intent to create naturalistic dialogue? No, not really, because uh, the dialogues are very, very stylized. Here in the little clip that we have, that's very much at the beginning of the film, a hostage-taking, very mysterious. Um, yes, it uh, appears to be some some sort of... Um, almost like a thriller, but it morphs into something completely unexpected, different, uh, very stylized dialogues about, uh, for example, um, anamorphic art, uh, 
right. uh, where all of a sudden a painting of a saint under a tree done in the 1640s or so, when you approach it, it doesn't look like a saint anymore. It stretches out into a, a 30 feet wide landscape. Right, that it's painted along <clears throat> a long corridor, a cord- along the wall yes, of a long yeah. corridor. So yes. when you look at it from a certain angle, it looks like a painting of the saint. But when you look at it from a 90 degree angle straight on, it's a landscape. Yes. Having and, to do with the saint's life. Right. Um, why did you make that choice? Um, I think these uh, things about uh, uh, perspectives and truth and what constitutes uh, a vision of things has has been long dormant in me and I always thought it should be part of a, of a feature film. And of course, uh, things are unexpected. All of a sudden, the lady whom we have heard in the clip, who is a scientist, is deliberately stranded in the middle of gigantic salt flats, um, actually in Bolivia, uh, together with two blind boys, local boys, who speak only Spanish and Quechua, the local native Indian language. And she has to survive with them. And only at the end we understand why uh, she was uh, exposed and stranded uh, in the middle of these gigantic salt flats. Why not just make an exciting thriller? Because you could just make an exciting thriller about somebody getting kidnapped for to make a point about an, envir- an impending environmental disaster. Um, it could have been, but I think it would have been a shallow film. And... Uh, of course, when you look environmental disaster, it's very fictitious. Uh, this uh, Diablo Blanco quote-unquote disaster doesn't exist. Salt flats, uh, they are there since millions of years in Bolivia and um, not man-made, but speculating um, the, as if that was man-made and would spread out and it spreads out uh, mile after mile each year. And it could spread across the entire continent, maybe even our entire planet. That's a uh, that's a very strange thought, and of course, there's an element of science fiction in it. Lots of discourse about aliens. Now, when you shoot in salt flats in Bolivia, that are too big to walk out of, part of what you're signing up to do is live there, be there. Um, how does it change? How is your movie different that you are doing them in this real place than it would be if, you know, you had the technology to seamlessly superimpose that grand vista behind your actor? Um, not really. When they move in it and uh, long traveling shots and so Quite a few things you cannot do with uh, digital effects. But if you, but I get the feeling that even if you could do them with digital effects, that you would be inclined to go there and be in the place. Right. Yeah. Because the feeling of space itself uh, and the focus on on human beings all of a sudden uh, it becomes intensified, and it's good for the actors. It's good for. Um, for the images, you have never seen locations like that. It's it looks like somewhere in outer space. There's something futuristic, science fiction about it, and and I really like it. Yeah, I mean, there's something remarkable about the tension between the intense practicality that you have to have to make a feature film, and especially when you're doing it on a budget without much room. And the intense impracticality of 
taking an airplane and a train and a drive three hours out into the middle of a salt flat to set up a camp with a famous German actress. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like those two things seem like they would be in opposition, but in fact, they they kind of work together in harmony in a weird way. It it does, um, but that's a mystery of cinema. And taking a German actress out in, in such an environment, there's nothing special about it. Tourists go there. They're in throngs, but at a different season, and there's nothing wrong about it. The problem with Veronica Ferris, a star in the film, a great German actress, was that her father passed away only a few days before we started shooting. So I said to her, there's more important, uh, there are things more important than making a movie. You have to bury your father first. Do that first. We'll wait. It doesn't matter. And so, of course, uh, it reduced our days of shooting even more. And secondly, she came in a way that she was very vulnerable and she would cry at the shoulder of my wife. And and you just interrupt shooting, and uh, an hour later, or half an hour later, she would come back, and she would say, I am done crying, uh, let's move on. And this is really brave. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Werner Herzog. He just released his newest movie. It's a thriller called Salt and Fire. How do you make a movie with actors as various as the actors that are in this film. In addition to a German star, uh, you have Gael Garcia Bernal, who's um, yeah. know, a totally magnetic yeah. Mexican actor who now I think lives in the United States. I might be wrong. Um, you have uh, Michael Shannon, a great American actor. You have a, do you have a non-actor? You have a theoretical physicist in a significant yeah, role. A cosmologist, Lawrence <laughs> Krauss. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, you have you have uh, two Bolivian children, <laughs> blind boys yeah. in the film. Yeah. So how do you um, how do you make a tone between people that are that different? You have to have it in you as a director. Uh, casting is such an important part, and you just don't. Um, combine a German star and uh, a great actor like Michael Shannon together. You just don't toss them together. Um, you have to know before you even start thinking that this will be great texture among them. And you see it with Gael, uh, the Mexican, and Lawrence Krauss, the cosmologist, who is a natural actor, in my opinion, and I know him since years and we became friends. And I said to him, you look like a villain. You should play a villain. And he was immediately ready to do that. But um, it was immediately clear uh, it's uh, chemistry. How do you get that is mysterious. But uh, you have to know it's going to function. More Bullseye after a quick break. Still to come, I talk about sports with Werner Herzog. No big deal. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Gorilla, a new limited event series presented by Showtime. A young, educated couple fighting social injustice take matters into their own hands, but find themselves in the crosshairs of a racist police force. From Academy Award winner John Ridley, Gorilla stars Frida Pinto and Babu Sise with Idris Elba. Don't miss Gorilla with new episodes Sunday at 9 p.m. Download the Showtime app now to start your free trial. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with Werner Herzog in a minute. But first, have you heard Pop Rocket? It's Bullseye's sister show here at Maximum Fun. Every week, Pop Rocket brings you a super smart, very funny panel discussion about everything in popular culture. It's hosted by our friend Guy Branham, recent guest on this show, also the host of True TV's talk show, The Game Show. Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse. Be sure to stretch and put on uh, some shoes with good support because it's an all-jams week here on Pop Rocket. We're going to be talking about Lady Gaga. We're going to be talking about Kendrick Lamar. We're going to be talking about Harry Styles going solo. It's a Pop Rocket with nothing but jams. Oh, I love it. I only wish that you, the Bullseye listener, could see Guy Branham tear up a dance floor because he gets down. Seriously. Anyway, Pop Rocket. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Werner Herzog. He's one of the greats of filmmaking. He was the man behind Grizzly Man, Fitzcarraldo, Encounters at the End of the World, and more. His latest film, Salt and Fire, is out now. Are you afraid to travel anywhere? No, not really. I mean, why should I? Well, I mean, you could... uh, you're old enough that you could fall and break a hip and it would be a long way to the hospital or something like that. And I mean, not I, that young people can't fall and I'm break a hip. I'm not fe- as feeble as that. <laughs> no, <laughs> I still I just came back from uh, uh, trekking in the mountains of northwestern uh, Spain with my younger son. So I, I love to do these things once in a while. But um, now there's, uh, people think, oh, we are going to the jungle in the Amazon uh, is so dangerous. No, it is not. It's just another forest. Or going, well, I wouldn't go uh, shooting a film in the eastern Congo because it's a war zone. You just don't go there and, and be stupid enough and, and shoot a film. But recently I've been in North Korea, filming in North Korea, and, and I'd like to go back. But I, I don't mind. And you just do the right things. It's interesting that you're that your concern for prudence is so significant when such a big part of your art is staring into the awesome, the awe-inspiring, whether it's natural or not, like things that seem too big to comprehend or too significant, powerful to comprehend is so central to what you do. Sure, and you can see it very clearly in my film on volcanoes into the inferno. Um there is a certain risk because they are sometimes unpredictable. You might have an explosion, and it actually happened while we were shooting. There was an explosion, um, and we were only something like two and a half miles away from the crater. And after 60 seconds or so of shooting, we fled. And only a week or so later, the same volcano really exploded big, and exactly where we had our camera, uh, seven or eight peasants perished. Sometimes you have to be a little bit lucky and you have to be prudent. Remind me again why you're not scared to go to these places. Well, how can I say it? I, I'm not afraid of anything. Why should I be afraid? Are you afraid of death? No, that's probably the key of it. How how do you handle the, your own mortality and it's it's quite insignificant if you die. Who cares? And uh, the universe itself couldn't even care less 
So we, we are just such a tiny, tiny speck somewhere in the universe. And um, there's a monumental indifference out there, whether we are alive or not. So that makes I've me settled feel, in with that. That makes me feel worse about it, Werner. <laughs> no, no, no. It's uh, we, we don't have to make such a big fuss about uh, our own mortality. We all eventually die. And that's that. So you better you better live well, and uh, live a, a meaningful life. I, I was I was laughing with you before the show about how you have two films coming out, two two narrative feature films coming out at the same time in the United States on the States. same day. On the same day, let's face it. Um, and yeah, it's uh, really weird. And yeah. you have other documentary films that are close enough for them to be your new film. Right. Uh, is part of what you feel like constitutes a well-lived life for you personally, that kind of productivity, the idea that you are making something, that you are not getting bogged down and not making something? I've never kept uh, abreast with all this onslaught, the vehemence of, of things coming at me. But at the same time, uh, it may sound as if I were a workaholic. I'm not. I, I'm totally relaxed. I work steadily. Well, I mean, the last time I saw you, I was interviewing your son for my show. That at was my the house. older one. That, I right. just the doorbell rang, and I walked down my my long front steps in the house I used to yeah. live in, and uh, down at the bottom of the stairs. Well, there's two Herzogs. Yeah. <laughs> And I thought, well, somebody's taking a minute off from their busy schedule <laughs> to come to my house for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> Must now, love his children. I, it's strange because I, I'm not hectic. Or I'm not a workaholic or anything. And you see, I can work in a very focused way. I write for uh, Salt in Fire. I wrote the screenplay maybe in five, maybe six days. But I, at the same time, I, I would... Uh, fill in my tax returns or answer the phone once in a while and I would write, let's say, 10 pages and then go to the bank because I had to go to the bank because I see the entire film in front of my eyes. Is that also true when you're making nonfiction films? To what extent do you see a nonfiction film? Um, quite often I, I stage things, I script things. So the distinction between a documentary or non-fiction and fiction is not as clear as for many other people. But, of course, when you're doing a film like um, Into the Inferno or whatever else, you cannot completely predict what's coming at you, but you have to be prepared. When you're making a documentary that's about people, um, you know, many of your documentaries are substantially about the natural world, and you can go and point a camera at them and we hear you talk. Um, but when you're making a documentary about people, are you always comfortable with the part of that that is basically bothering them, that you are imposing yourself upon their lives, that you're asking things of them? Sure, I do. Um, and that's filmmaking. You see, I've heard it once in a while that documentary filmmakers should be just like the fly on the wall. Wrong. We are filmmakers. We are creators. It's a wrong perspective. If you have uh, a security camera in a bank, 
and you wait for 15 years and not a single robber is even arriving. And even if a bank robbery occurs from a, from a little camera on the wall, it would look totally boring. So we are creating. I, I was on an airplane six or nine months ago, and I watched A Little Detour Needs to Fly, your film from, I guess it's sort of the mid-1990s. Yes. And um, it's a really remarkable film about a German-American airman who was uh, in the U.S. Air Force and was a prisoner of war in Laos. He survived an ex an unfathomable prisoner of war experience. Yeah, yeah an ordeal of unspeakable proportions. Yeah, I mean, genuinely... John, John McCain, uh, who is considered the real hero, uh, didn't go through right. half of what Dieter Dengler went. So part of the film is, is interviews with him in the United States, reminiscing mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Part of the film is the two of you traveling through Laos, experiencing and visiting, and in some cases reenacting the things that he went through. Yeah. There's a scene that I found very affecting where he is narrating a portion of his captivity where he was mar forcibly marched through the jungle. Yes. And as we do this, there are Lao guys there, I presume Lao guys there. It was actually Thailand right at the border with Laos on, on Mekong River. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. And and he is bound and jogging through through the forest as the, you know, however old he was, 50-year-old man in the film. And I, I, we have a clip from it, so I, I want to yeah. listen to it. And for me, 30 years later, when I was a pilot in Vietnam, I was a prisoner. I was tortured, and they wanted me to sign a piece of paper saying that I condemned the American action in Vietnam. And I was strong enough not to, not to do that. Many times, these strengths came through my grandfather. I was thinking of him, and he, if he could do it, so could I do it. Uh-oh, this feels a little bit too close to home. Bye, bye. Of course, Dieter knew it was only a film. But all the old terror returned as if it were real. I thought, you guys behind me with your camera can only see my back, but you can't know how my heart is thumping inside. I told myself, okay, play along with them. Running like this might chase the demons away. Do you feel guilty about putting someone through that? No, of course not. Uh, Dieter says something very significant. Uh, go along with it, it might chase the demons away, which uh, it was healthy for him to to be tied up and, and running through the jungle with his ca uh, captors. Um, you have to know with whom you are dealing and you have to see uh, what kind of uh, inner stability they have. And with uh, Dieter Dengler, you could do this. I wouldn't do it with uh, someone else, for example, But in this case, yes, totally legitimate. And that's uh, how you really dig very, very deep into the heart of, of someone who is on, on uh, your screen. Okay, two questions uh, that were suggested to me that I, I found really interesting and wanted to ask you. The first was, do you watch any sitcoms? No, I, I barely know what it is. <laughs> But I think it's people sitting on couches and talking. Yeah, Sometimes well, when I zap through channels, I, I see people talking uh, 
in their kitchen or in their living room. Now, I, I really know very little about it. What's your favorite, like, unimportant thing to do? That's a much deeper question. <laughs> I like to watch that, baseball, yeah. Werner. When, what I like about baseball is I have a very sophisticated understanding of it, and there is a sophisticated understanding of it to be had. Yeah. But it is also a little bit boring, and it does not matter at all. Um, I do understand that part. Uh, for me, it would be watching soccer because I played it myself uh, fifth division or so. I mean, at a fairly low level. And I like to watch games where I see players that can read the game. And that's something very unique, very special. Very few players in the world have this ability to read uh, spatial movements and read what's coming at them. Uh, the other question is, what happened the time that you got shot on camera? I've watched it, and I'm still not sure what happened. Well, because you haven't uh, seen or heard the preceding That's 10 true. or 15 minutes uh, when they set up, it was a BBC interview, when they set up a camera that was from across the street, somebody raving and ranting, a little bit like road rage. Always these movie stars and the cameras and F you and get out of here. And so, and uh, we started the conversation on camera and all of a sudden I heard some sort of an explosion on the tape. You, it's, it's like a minor sort of shot, but it sounded like an explosion. And I thought the camera had exploded because... Something glowing hot, like a like a three pound glowing hot piece of metal, hit me in the, in the area of my belt. And I looked at the camera and I see it was hadn't exploded. And I said, "What was that?" And I see a man ducking at the veranda on the other side of the street. And I wanted to at least finish my sentence and, and finish the thought. I, I knew I was hit. And and then I uh, we we looked at the situation and I I saw that um, the bullet minor sort of bullet uh, had perforated my leather jacket and the catalog in the pocket and shirt and underwear and everything, but it hadn't penetrated into my intestines. So I was bleeding, but uh, it was superficial. And I said, uh, this was an insignificant bullet, which made its round in the internet. <laughs> That was a pretty it, great thing to say. No, it it was insignificant. So right. I said the right thing. I I made a correct assessment of the well, situation. I think the part that's amazing about it is that you made a correct assessment of the situation. Sure. That yes. in and of itself is yeah. remarkable. Well, and it's not the first time I've been shot at. Uh, I've been shot at much more dangerously, with much bigger guns, and uh, you can never get acquainted to it. But I think once. Uh, Winston Churchill, the young Winston Churchill, once famously said uh, it's one of the most exhilarating moments in a man's life to be shot at unsuccessfully. <laughs> well, Werner, I've taken so much of your time and I'm so grateful uh, to get to see you again and talk to you again. Thank you again. Thank you as well. Thank you. Werner Herzog, his movie Salt and Fire is available now. You can find it on iTunes and Amazon. He also just released another movie, got a release date almost unexpectedly immediately before we did this interview, so I didn't get to see it. It's called Queen of the Desert. 
You can find it online and, and I think still in some theaters. Every week we wrap up Bullseye with a pop culture recommendation from me. It's the outshot. Heart. That's like James L. Brooks's thing. Heart is, a, is odd. It's just kind of a Hollywood deal. It sits comfortably in the middle of the road. It's a satisfying conclusion, comfortable, comforting emotion, feelings that feel right. It's square, by which I mean square, but also even and well-finished. It's one of those things. It's easy to say that something needs heart. It's tough to create heart. Like, here's an example. If all that James L. Brooks ever did was convince the grumpy, joke-obsessed nerds at The Simpsons that Bart, Lisa, Homer, Marge, and Maggie should care about each other, like actually care about each other, in other words, have heart, he'd be one of the most important men in broadcasting history. But it's not just The Simpsons. It's Mary Tyler Moore, Taxi, Terms of Endearment, as good as it gets. Brooks makes you love his characters. He always has room for heart. Of course, that doesn't always work. Some of his movies feel too soft, focusy, sweet. That happens when you shoot for heart and you're a little off the mark, but not usually. And definitely not in my favorite of all of his works, Broadcast News. It's a movie from 1987, a grown-up dramedy about the TV news business. The star is Holly Hunter, a network news producer who's introduced hectoring an audience about journalistic ethics. We are being increasingly influenced by the star system. The network anchormen are so powerful they comprise our last best hope. Our profession is in danger. So, I want to go eat. The current group is clearly qualified, tied still to our best traditions, but... Who follows these men? Excuse me. Her love interest, who comes up to her after the lecture, is a sports guy. Former sports guy, anyway. Handsome, kind of dumb, doesn't know much about journalism. He's good on camera, though. And he's coming to work for Holly Hunter as a real journalist. He's a little lost. That guy's played by William Hurt. (laughs) I can't believe I'm really here. No kidding. If you're through work now, we can... No. Aaron and I go to Central America on Wednesday, so I am crimming. I thought you were incredible in there. Everybody was. I know how much I have to learn. If I could, I mean, I would really a lot appreciate it if... Really a lot appreciate it? You make me nervous. Anyway... If I can pick your brain, if... I I can't help you. Sorry, I'm not here to teach remedial reporting. Hunter's character has a best friend, too. He's a guy who is only semi-secretly in love with her, played by Albert Brooks. Brooks is a great reporter, deeply moral, and like Holly Hunter's character, he's desperately ambitious. Although he is also maybe not quite prepared for what his ambitions might bring him. How'd it go? You didn't see it or talk to anybody? No. Then it went very well. Did it really go well? Define your terms. Do you feel good about it? No. Do others feel that you did well? No. Then what was good about it? I lost six pounds. Aaron, will you tell me? It was great. There I was, writing my little first-rate copy. 
sitting on my jacket, punching my one thought. Except I had this historic attack of flop sweat. They're never going to let me anchor again, ever. Oh, yeah, I lost one of your shoulder pads. I think it drowned. How was your evening, anyway? What do you mean, flop sweat? You're making too much out of this. I bet you were the only one aware of it. People phoned in. Stop kidding with me. I want to know what happened. I'm not kidding. They were complaining phone calls because you were sweating. No, nice ones. Worried that I was having a heart attack. It's a love triangle. It's a romantic comedy. But instead of being built around uh, one guy's goofy pursuit of a girl and then a suave millionaire who's definitely wrong for her, it's built around basically three people trying to figure out their lives. The setup for these three is almost archetypal. A nerd, a handsome guy, and a career woman who they're both pursuing. But the writing and the performances complicate that every time, at every turn. Like Albert Brooks. He's a hero. He's smart. He's competent. He's passionate. He cares about her. But he is also a genuine jerk, and he lets his smarts get in the way. Or take William Hurt, the handsome dope. Hurt is superb at playing dumb, and he certainly does things wrong. But he knows what he doesn't know, and he also actually cares. And Hunter's character is maybe the most lost of them all, but she is also the most forward-driving of them all. She is always running through a hallway. The movie's not really for that or against it, which is interesting. She gets called out for the blindness of her ambition, but she doesn't get punished for it like they usually do to ambitious women in movies. Tom's not ready for the job you're about to hand him. Not near ready. Not by the longest shot. Now, Aaron spent six weeks in Tripoli. He's interviewed Gaddafi. He reported on the 81 story. I think he's essential to do the job we're capable of. And I, I think it's my responsibility to tell you that. Okay, that's your opinion. I don't agree. It's not opinion. You're just absolutely right. And I'm absolutely wrong. It must be nice to always believe you know better. To always think you're the smartest person in the room. And because broadcast news is warm and funny, and because the creator of Mary Tyler Moore wrote it, well, we think it's going to wrap up like a sitcom. But it doesn't. It wraps up like real life. Jagged edges on real people. People who are a mess, but are basically decent. It lets us feel them as they feel their way. It gives us something warm, but real. In other words, broadcast news has heart. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Our show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Update in the credits this week, the fountain has started working again. So our thanks to the Los Angeles Parks Department. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He gets help from Christian Duenas. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. MaximumFun.org's senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team, provided to us by them and their label, Memphis Industries. And special thanks this week to our friend Phil Elverum, who recorded himself at his studio in Anacortes, Washington. DIY, folks. 
If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We've got the best from this week's show and more. Dumb internet stuff we've been passing around the office here. Maybe we'll even tip you off to an interview we've got coming up down the road. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.